Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your co-host, Nav M. Welcome to this first episode. Now, because this is a first show, we'd like to start with a brief introduction about each host, because I'm sure many of the listeners are intrigued about our background and, in particular, our names, Nav and Nav. They're very, very similar. What's the meaning behind the two letters, C and M? So perhaps we could start in alphabetical order with Nav C. Definitely, we can. Firstly, the Nav and Nav comes from the first part of our names. I'm Navja and he's Navrub, but Nav is the short form. Secondly, it's not often that married couples with same names work together in a business. In, in, a, in our case, it's true. We run a home staging and redesign business in Toronto. Where we start, When we started, we, we found that the clients were confused about our names because they were so similar. So we devised a method of differentiating our names and our roles. In the business, I deal with the creative services in relation to interior design and home staging, hence the C. But when we... We thought of, uh, but after that, we thought of representing our business profiles with three words be- beginning with the same respective letter. So in my case, the C represents my sun sign, Capricorn, compassion, and chic. At present, I'm the creative director for our business, Symmetry Home Staging and Redesign. Previously, I worked in retail before my move um, to Canada from the UK. Initially, like many others, I embarked on a journey of uh, voluntary work before pursuing a full-time career in healthcare. I worked in both transitional care and supportive housing settings, providing care to people with cognitive and physical disabilities. Okay, and in my case, uh, for Nav M, the, the M refers to my functional role in the business, and that's dealing with digital and online marketing. And the three words that I chose to represent my personality are, firstly, Mars, which is my ruling planet within astrology. Uh, secondly, one word which um, represents me as an individual, that's motivation. And also, on a lighter side, uh, the third word is maverick. So in terms of experience, I have a broad commercial background ranging from publishing, display advertising, retail and franchise operations, digital printing, office stationery, and more recently as a crisis responder in the complex world of victim support. Uh, Also, I'm a writer specializing in blog posts and content marketing, but my real passion is short stories. So this was a journey which began back in 2009 with BBC Radio in the UK, and this particular show cast a spotlight on local writers in the West Midlands region, Uh, and since then I've had several short stories under my belt. So, Navsi, now that the introductions are over, we have a lot to discuss in this first episode. It's all go. I totally agree. Let's get started. Okay, so let's start with the the title. Why did we choose the title? The the title is COVID-19, The New Abnormal. So let's break this down um, step by step. So the new, uh, 
we we thought of approaching this from a completely different angle. So we've been told in the media that it's the new normal. So but we the way we felt it was completely the opposite. It didn't feel anything like normal. So that's why we came up with this particular title, the new abnormal. So when we start looking at this title, obviously the new that has replaced something which uh, which occurred or was something in the past. Um, and then the the normal, basically, then that represents uh, acceptance or conformity. But then we, we have to look at it from a different perspective. And we say, as a society, we've been told through media and through uh, word of mouth, through our individual uh, personal channels, that as a society, we're unique and we're different. So this idea of normal just just didn't seem uh, it just didn't sit well with me in particular so let's start with a brief background about this this uh, particular crisis so the current crisis is clearly the elephant in the room in terms of topical discussion it, it seems to be the only show in town it's devouring all media space and airtime and um, what we've witnessed is signs of a, a global structural breakdown in relation to existing economic and social norms and despite what politicians are telling us that world economies are transitioning to phased adjustments and there's a process of sequential stages going on the reality actually is somewhat wide of the mark so what's been unfolding in the past four months uh, is essentially an economic collapse on an unprecedented scale so we've seen that global economic activity has contracted adversely and this has affected world trade. And millions of people across the world are either economically inactive or they will be unemployed without access to any form of earnings. And judging from past economic crises, the outcome is inevitable. It's a situation of poverty, despair, human ruin caused by large sections of the global population being excluded from the labor market. So in the Western Hemisphere, many countries have already reported signs of population anxiety, reduced well-being, depression, suicide, social unrest. And these have all been linked. All of these factors are linked to the uh, impending threat of an economic downturn. And equally, if we look at developing countries, they haven't fared any better either. Many developing countries have been characterized uh, or the state of their economies uh, are characterized by the presence of what we call casual economies. So this refers to a large proportion of the labor force involved in subsistence type work, such as cottage industries and small scale self-employment. And here what we'll see is that the consequences are much worse. It's, we, you know, we're looking at homelessness, we're looking at famine, economic marginalization on a massive scale. But the real concern, when we look at it closely, is, is the long-term effects, the long-term influence on wider society. And, and this has been sparked by recent events such as social distancing, stay-at-home orders, lockdown, and mandatory mask wearing in public areas. So for the past four months, uh, what we've seen uh, in, in news networks and mainstream media and, and governments is, is one focus and one focus only. And that's been to pump out vast amounts of data on what, on what the scientific community currently understands about COVID-19. 
And when we look at this closely, what we see is that data is just seems to be completely skewed. It's, it's just one-sided. It just exclusively focuses on uh, a comparative country basis, whether they report confirmed cases, recovered cases, uh, death rate basis. It's all the same. It's just one message, daily case counts, positive and negative rates, uh, mortality rates, and, and uh, the one that we all know, the one that we've heard about, is uh, flat, flattening the curve. Uh, it's a pretty stark reality, isn't it? Uh, I think everyone is uh, still trying to make sense of, sense of it. How can we, uh, the question is, how can we approach the crisis in a different way? I mean, firstly, uh, we have to reiterate one thing, it, um, uh, and this is something for everyone to bear in mind. It is just a bewildering amount of data being directed purely at one phenomenon. But the interesting thing to note is that there's actually very, very few questions being asked by um, outside or independent agencies. And those that are asking questions, uh, it appears that they're being sidelined. Um, either they're not being, um, their views are not being represented in the media. So we look at this from a, an alternative viewpoint, and and uh, this is one um, this is one theme which uh, a lot of our listeners will, will will be able to pick up on in the next few weeks. So we approach uh, the focus of our shows to look at this from an, an alternative perspective. So. One useful starting point to begin with is, with, and this is true with any problem which is presented to us, is to ask questions. So one great way to ask questions is through the process or the concept of com- uh, observation. And this is because observation leads us to further questions. And what you'll see is that observation is a key theme throughout this discussion. Now, we've seen that recent events, we've witnessed changing social norms, changing personal behavior, and how individuals, how societies deal with these issues and changes. But these are essentially, these are our primary experiences. These are the uh, the ideas that allow us to form opinions. And therefore, uh, I think it's necessary to make an initial distinction that Observation is a natural human instinct it, because it guides us through life and uh, through everyday life. And human instinct uh, is unique because we absorb information via a process of perception and awareness. And through our individual senses, uh, we can witness a natural event. So let's take something very, very simple, such as snow falling on the ground. So the key point here is that observation and perception are uniquely linked. Uh, And I say that because a student can't learn about photosynthesis, you know, the idea we've all learned about photosynthesis in biology. A student can't learn about this just by standing in the sun and watching a leaf um, and being uh, independent from from other uh, events. And neither can they learn about the nature of science just by carrying out activities in a lab or carrying out investigations. So the, so the idea of observation is a key element. Uh, so it's important to remember this. It's a key element of the scientific procedure through data gathering and data recording because it leads, leads us to formulate um, and test new hypotheses. 
but we can la- elaborate on this idea of, of, uh, of observation by, uh, again, an alternative p- uh, perspective or an additional perspective. And, and what we're going to do is, is, is bring in the idea of philosophy. Now, there's an age-old argument between philosophy and science regarding observation, specifically in relation to reason and truth. So, for instance, philosophers will always focus on the framework of knowledge using this idea, this concept of reason, whereas scientists will uh, conduct empirical research. And and what I mean by empirical research is, uh, for those of you not familiar with that, it's just uh, purely when you see these images of uh, laboratory work going on and you you see these uh, people in, in white coats, that's, in a nutshell, that's essentially what empirical research is. And that is based on physical properties around us. It's based on uh, natural structures and form. And this leads to the development of scientific theories. So the crucial point here is that philosophy, uh, as, as an additional perspective, can offer a guiding role for science, especially in, in the current COVID-19 crisis. So the, the following concepts, the ones that we're going to discuss, that uh, I'd just like to point out that they may seem a little bit rigid, but so I'd ask the listeners to just be a little bit uh, patient because once you start taking in these ideas, once you start listening and absorbing the ideas, it's absolutely essential in adopting a, an alternative viewpoint in terms of what we are currently experiencing as, as a society. So let's start with this idea of uh, an analytical approach because this discussion uh, hinges on the work of an eminent philosopher called Bertrand Russell. And he stated that facts have to be discovered by observation and, and not by reasoning. So the basic argument here is that observation is data gathering. It's based on in empirical truth about the natural world. And it's based on the fact that objective uh, it's based on the fact uh, that we have an objective analysis of facts and and therefore this leads to a a causal relationship in other words cause and effect in terms of developing scientific theories so one aspect of philosophy is how the world should be based on universal truths but in contrast uh, there, there's an alternative view known as analytic philosophy, which, which is largely credited to Bertrand Russell. And th- this is key to understanding the, you know, the, the discussion that w- we're, we're going to b- present. And this highlights the importance of uh, not only empirical observation and, and empirical research, but logical analysis as well. And analytic uh, approach is essential to what we call a normative understanding of the world around us. And the reason uh, I stress this is because a normative approach is, is, is absolutely key to what we've been seeing in, the, in this current crisis because it determines a universal, uh, it's an approach which determines universal conditions by asking key questions about what should be or what ought to be uh, and this is done by you know applying the process of of, of reason and uh, we're looking at basically are the decisions being made around us right now are they good decisions are, are these decisions which are being made by authorities and politicians around us are, do they lead to optimal or desired outcomes 
And these basic premises are absolutely crucial to a a greater understanding of of this chain of events which has occurred during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I agree. It's it's a lot of information to take in and there are a lot of points to consider. Um, we have to be very mindful uh, of the sensitivity of the crisis. Uh, people have lost a friend, a family member, or perhaps have not even been able to visit family. Uh, there might have been a you know, loss of a job or an opportunity or a business being closed line. So everybody's has been on this journey, uh, you know, in this very, in in these very testing times. Uh, what I can add to this uh, from my own work experience is because I dealt with chronically ill patients when um, during my uh, work, uh, is that they were already uh, isolated before uh, pre-COVID. They did not have many visitors in the first place, uh, but now they seem to be feel be completely isolated because they're totally cut off. So uh, the question arises is bearing all this in, uh, keeping all this in our view, how do we use the information to understand the situation better? Um, How does this analysis of both uh, schools of thought apply to the COVID scenario? I I agree, Navsi. I think that it's... um I think what you've said there is very, mm-hmm. very um, pertinent to the to the situation around us, and um, I totally agree that we have to be uh, completely sensitive to what people have experienced. Uh, everyone has their own views about this. Um, the fact that people are isolated from family members, loved ones, etc., it's a very, very uh, uh, testing experience. But what all we're trying to say is that we're just approaching this uh, chain of events, we're approaching this crisis from an alternative perspective. So I completely agree, it's it's still a very fluid situation. But the starting point is is to ask, firstly, coming back to to the original ideas of of, uh, Bertrand Russell, is, is there a joint role for philosophy and science to probe different areas of the same problem? Because we know that science focuses on empirical observation, whereas philosophy acts as a framework or a structure to uh, provide um, a a different perspective through conceptual analysis. And in other words, this allows uh, science uh, to create much more uh, accurate observations and, and, and offer better data. So we can focus on examples uh, from the current COVID-19 crisis. So there, there, essentially there are three methods in which philosophy can improve the conceptual framework that, that we're referring to. And the first one, the first contribution made by philosophy is how philosophy clarifies scientific concepts. Now, conceptual analysis influences how experiments are put forward and it involves the use of critique. Now, the application of reason is is, uh, absolutely embedded within the discipline of philosophy. So, when we examine a problem, when we evaluate a problem, what that does, it helps to reframe an argument in a completely different light. So... Therefore, by improving uh, scientific terminology, this leads to a a new approach to empirical research. 
So again, let's bring this back to the the uh, the focus of this discussion. Let's see how this could be applied in in, in the current crisis. So in the early stages of the the COVID crisis, as lockdowns were implemented on on a global level, uh, country after country, uh, you could see this happening all all around you. Whether you're watching it on the news through different news networks, but uh, it it there was. Uh, each country displaying a level of conformity which was absolutely unprecedented in, in modern history and it was almost like a domino effect and you could see uh, within the space of uh, a month it's almost 192 countries had had um, had become involved in, in this uh, whole process of, of uh, lockdowns so what this implies is that there's a, a top-down compliance at the, the highest level to systematically shut down the mass functioning of, of the of uh, each global economy, of each constituent economy within the the global structure, and given that it was clear to many people about the social and economic consequences of shutting down entire sectors of the economy, we have to ask ourselves that: uh, Can we reframe this argument by asking important questions and? The first ones that, that I would come up with are these, and, and these are really important to, for the listeners to actually bear in mind and, and think about these. So first of all, what, was there a critique of this, this campaign of mass scientific data? And, and was there any rational debate? And where was the application of reason? Was anyone applying this process of reason uh, to, to, this, uh, to this whole scenario? because all we could see was a, a, a display of irrationality. So moving on, was there any consultation or discussion via a, a legislative mechanism? And what I perceived was that it was just a system imposed on the vast majority of global citizens. And then you ask yourself, what, what were the alternatives? And the fact is that there are, in, in any crisis, in any problem scenario, there are always alternatives to reframe any, any argument. And the perfect example of this is the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in October 1962, uh, where uh, John F. Kennedy cr uh, came up with different alternatives. And the, 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 the next point is, basically, uh, should the use of disproportionate force be challenged because the, there seemed to be no debate in, in any legislative body or any uh, national assembly or parliament and ultimately the, we have to ask ourselves does the end justify the means history contains an array of examples which show that uh, wherever, wherever you have adverse effects of disproportionate for, force on society and economies, you, you, we have to ask this, does the end justify the means? So very shortly, uh, we will be coming up to a, a break. Um, but in the next segment, what we're going to be talking about is the, the second contribution made by philosophy. And uh, I'll just briefly touch on this. So, so this uh, really is... Um, this looks at the critical analysis of scientific methods and procedure. And uh, what we're looking at here is um, how a, philo a philosophical framework offers forward guidance in evaluating the scientific premises that, that we've already talked about. And 
are they useful in suggesting new routes for empirical research? And, and what we're going to be focusing on is is the uh, the issue uh, of masks, um, and and in particular the uh, mandatory um, uh, information given out by um, public authorities uh, that we should be wearing masks. So this this is a uh, this is an issue here which which affects all of us basically. And what we've seen is um, there's a wealth of online evidence from health experts which, which either supports or disproves the theory that masks can prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, currently, there are two types of masks which are being used in clinical environments. So let's take the first one. The first one is a surgical mask. And this provides uh, a barrier protection against transmission of particle droplets. The primary use is for use by trained health personnel in a, in a sterile environment, example, a medical theater. And it's designed purely to cover the mouth and the nose loosely, but they're not sized for individual fit. And then, for instance, we look at N95 masks. So these masks are designed as particulate respirators, i.e. they provide filtering against 95% of airborne contaminants. And again, they are worn uh, in, in a clinical environment by healthcare professionals where protection from airborne and fluid hazards are required. And the main, the main issue here is that, that they form a tight seal over the mouth and the nose and they require fit testing um, and adjusting to the face. So, uh, as I said, we're, we're coming up to a short break now, um, and what we'll be discussing um, is uh, the conflicting data in relation to the use of masks. Um, and this, this, again, this is, a, this is something which is very pertinent in, in uh, the times that we're living in right now and how uh, it seems to be affecting us uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, so this is, this is where we're going to be picking up from in, in the next segment of the show. Okay, uh, at this point, we're returning right back. Please stay with us. You're listening to GMC. Uh, Good morning, Canada, with Navin Nath. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. And just before the last segment, we were talking about the issue of masks and uh, we, we focused on the conflicting data in relation to the use of masks. So this is where we're going to pick up from. So in the early stages of the crisis, the general public were informed by the CDC, which is the Centre for Disease Control, and the WHO, that wearing masks was not mandatory. And, and therefore, to avoid a supply shortage, that the uh, masks should be reserved for health workers in the front line. And, and therefore... Uh, key elements of uh, PPE, which is personal protective equipment, should be reserved for that uh, for those workers. Now, this raises a, a very serious point about health organisations, such as hospitals and municipalities, because um, I personally have experience of uh, of, of buying um, and uh, uh, in terms of uh, buying and sourcing equipment. So. When you look at all uh, major health organizations, they, they have dedicated buying departments which source PPE, and, and that equipment is provided free to all of their staff. So the, the question which arises in my mind, is, is it really credible to suggest that, that health professionals were, were going out um, to, to uh, places like Walmart, Costco, and other big box stores, and, and they were buying all their masks and gloves from there? And so that just seems very odd to me. And uh, the next thing is that there have been numerous medical studies which have highlighted the issue of incorrect wearing of N95 masks in particular. And 
and what those studies have shown is that they've interfered with physiological and psychological aspects of task performance. And these factors include respiration, metabolism, vision, communication, or general well-being of the user. Now, the, the point is that uh, when we apply this to the to this, uh, to the COVID crisis, for what we're experiencing now is it, it's very very similar because these same restrictive factors and these conditions apply to the general public, and and this could be, uh, uh, for instance, workers from a non-medical background, example, retail or industrial settings. So, so the overbearing question uh, that comes to to my mind is if the mask isn't if the mask that's being that we're being asked to wear if it's not fit for purpose why is the general public being asked to wear it and and this uh, in turn this raises fundamental discrepancies regarding the use of masks so three three points here which I'd like to pick up on so masks firstly they they can't be worn for long periods of time so if you look at uh, in any uh, medical uh, environment, we know that uh, in, in a, in a theatre environment, uh, trained health personnel only wear them for 30 minutes and, and then uh, around about that period, maybe up to an hour, and then, and then they have to go and change them. So the point here is that there's a great deal of variation in terms of tolerance levels, uh, the conditions inside those masks in terms of uh, humidity levels, etc. So Carrying on with this variability factor, what it means is that, that wearers should be consulted on an individual basis regarding choice about wearing that item. And therefore, the point is that one size, this one, uh, one size does not fit all. So applying a one size fits all policy to the wearing of face coverings or surgical masks simply does not stand up to reasoning or medical scrutiny. And we know this for a fact that the majority of users, when you look around you, when, when you go to any um, uh, uh, retail uh, setting or when you're out and about in the public, the, the majority of users are, are constantly taking them off and they're adjusting the fit. And, th and there's a follow-up point here. that the, the majority of masks being used by the public are, are surgical masks, so they're designed to be disposable. But we know for a fact that people are just reusing them over and over again on a regular basis. So clearly there, there's health implications there in terms of reuse. Um, and then the third point is that there seems to be, uh, to me, that, uh, there's a contradiction here, a huge contradiction between high-value concept and low-value item. So let's look at this closely. Public authorities are constantly informing us that the wearing of masks are critical to slowing or reducing infection rates. But the underlying premise here is that, um, that uh, it, the masks are there to protect the individual and others around them. So, so therefore, we're being told it's a high-value item. But then the question that, that comes to my mind uh, and, and what I've seen for, from my own personal experience in, in, in the, when you walk around is that many, um, why have so many retailers stepped forward and, um, and they have exploited this gap in the market uh, in terms of masks, the availability of masks, the supply of masks? Why are they already exploiting an already sensitive issue by selling their own masks? And, 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 and we've seen this uh, go one step further. They're producing even matching, uh, matching mats that, that match with your particular outfit. So 
I, I really come to one conclusion, and uh, so isn't it true that these uh, the masks have actually uh, transitioned from a high value item to an actual low value commodity? Because uh, if if the masks are being worn in in such a casual manner, people are tearing uh, wearing them and, and taking them off. Perhaps it, 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 the uh, it, the mass should be distributed now as a public good. In other words, distributed free. Um, so the point is essentially, what, why are we paying for them if if they've just become a commodity? So let let's come to the third contribution made by philosophy. And um, what we're saying here is that this focuses on establishing new concepts and and new theories. So. Philosophical critiques uh, as a discipline, they have a long track record of, of contributing to new theoretical frameworks and, and creating new routes for scientific research. And this is something very, very important, um, and I'd really like the listeners to take note of this, because documented examples of where philosophical critiques have, have been applied to scientific research include stem cell research, oncology, which is the treatment of cancer cells, uh, and immunity research, including autoimmune disease and immune responses to tumors. So what the real significance here to the, to the current crisis is that uh, it is the application to research uh, currently being done on symbiotic integration and immune tolerance. Uh, and why is that important? Well, Basically, this has wider implications for our understanding of the uh, ecosystems of mammals and how they uh, prepare defense and repair functions and how those same functions, how they're uh, affected by interactions with microbes, including uh, uh, bacteria, fungi and viruses. So, again, um, I have to um, just say to the listeners, you know, please bear with this a lot of information being thrown at you, but what does this mean to a layman? What does it mean in plain English? Well, our recommendation is that, that it is necessary to adopt a new approach to this crisis by merging critiques. And what we're asking is that can the same philo philosophical critique also be applied to current research in the COVID-19 crisis? And is it, and therefore, is it possible to open up new avenues of, of data research? So we, we've been hearing uh, for the past few weeks, the past few months, governments and mass media, they're issuing vast amounts of information in terms of the uh, underlying scientific theory. And this is what we keep hearing about, is, is the actual theory itself behind the, the family of coronaviruses uh, and and we're being told about the nature of the virus and and it's a new strain etc so I, I think it's important to make a very uh, clear distinction about the use of the term scientific theory because this applies to us right now at this very moment and it's important to remember that that every scientific theory essentially begins as a hypothesis. And a hypothesis is a concept or a belief which hasn't been proven yet. So then gradually over time, with more and more data, uh, as the data accumulates, this supports the hypothesis. 
and then uh, the scientific community will will move to the process to the next stage, which is the which is the theory stage. And once a scientific theory is established, it becomes a guiding framework for observations and facts. So again, the crucial point here for everyone uh, to to think about is that theories adapt over time, uh, and also they are reinterpreted. So. My question is, so if so little is known about uh, the COVID-19 crisis and, and the background to all of this and uh, the ongoing research, the, the theories are developing over time. Is it, is it fair to suggest that, that a, a disproportionate response has been taken? And if, if, that, if that is so, if a disproportionate response has been taken, can this response be justified? And so we have to ask ourselves, has a rational approach to this crisis been uh, implemented by authorities globally on a, on a global level? So... Based on a uh, on the on the current evidence we have, we know that there's uh, or we're being told that there's a clear and present danger of a second wave of uh, coronavirus. So if this is true, then considering all the efforts taken so far to protect individuals, using an array of home orders, lockdowns, national and international shutdowns then perhaps it's time for us to advocate the case for a different approach, an alternative uh, perspective. And, uh, and, and I, I, again, I bring in this, this case for analytic philosophy because that should work in tandem with a scientific approach. And why do we say that? Well, because the, the key thing here is that a, a philosophical critique is fundamentally based on a meticulous and a rational investigation of the facts. So again, let's bring this back to, let's bring this, uh, this framework, let's bring it back to the, the current crisis. Because um, to date, can we honestly say, when we ask ourselves, can we honestly say that we've seen a rational response to, to this crisis? So for instance, let's look at, let's look at some examples of, of, a, of a lack of rationality being manifested. So the first one, and, and I think everyone will, will, um, will vouch to this, is that Essentially, what, what we've seen is uh, th there's been very little rational discussion, that there's been very little rational approach by news networks um, uh, and, the, and the media and, and, and in turn governments. But what we've seen is that fear is the co common denom uh, sorry, the, the common denominator being used. It is the, it is the base for everything that we see around us. And essentially it's being used uh, as, as a currency and it's being traded globally by, by governments. So moving on, let, let's again looking at this uh, approach of rationality and how, how, how we can um, bring in um, a, a philosophical critique and, and merge it with the scientific approach. Let's look at this concept of quarantine because um, to me it just seems nothing more than house arrest or, or solitary confinement. Uh, based on data, which again, uh, which we've already discussed this, that data is ongoing. Uh, theories change over time. And, uh, and as they change over time with new data, it's open to interpretation. So we, be, we have to ask ourselves, is the solution creating far bigger problems th than the event itself? Because 
um, when we look early in this crisis that these are the, the, these are the issues that the, the, the idea of quarantine was the one that affected people most. And right now it's the issue of masks. So all of these measures that have been taken, is the solution creating a far bigger problem th than the event itself? So again, let, let's look at the reporting of data. How, how can authorities uh, completely um, isolate existing comorbidities, cases of comorbidities from the, uh, the cases that we're seeing now of, of COVID data? And again, this comes back to this idea that of how uh, uh, the scientific community uh, uh, measures information, how, the, how do they record the data, wh which methods are being used, which procedures are being used. And, 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 and I think it's really important that, that you ask yourself these questions because are these are these uh, uh, case studies? Is is, is there um, is there similarity between uh, between the cases, and and therefore uh, are they completely being isolated? Then let's let's look at the use of shock tactics um, being used by governments, because that's essentially what what it is. Everyone has experienced in the last few weeks this this uh, this process of um, trauma and and shock uh, and. Especially during that lockdown period, people were in complete uh, shock in terms of the, the, the novelty of this this event. Um, so th again, this is the, this is a key point to, to remember that the, these are essentially shock tactics. So when you look at these examples which have been mentioned, um, is, is it fair to say that this disproportionate response? Um, is it actually is it actually rational in, in in approach and and therefore is the solution uh, being offered by public authorities and governments is it creating a bigger problem not only now in the present but in the future and 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 these problems are are, are varied and 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 so complex and 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 they could be health related they could be financially related uh, uh, and again there's just huge knock-on effects that there's huge domino effects of this i think we should also consider the uh, the importance of the opportunity cost of the of the covid crisis because other health issues uh, have been completely displaced um, and I'm talking about health issues such as ones which have been recently uh, or, or prominent in, etc. Uh, maybe you've had personal experience of this, but just off the top of my head, it could be something like mental health, it could be depression, it could be autism, all of these issues, all of these issues affect us. And other health issues have been displaced by one colossal event. And uh, there have been examples of, of unreported illnesses uh, taking place because people essentially are too scared to go to health centers and hospitals because th th there's the whole fear about we don't know how to react, we don't know how to go into these places, um, what am I supposed to do? And, and it's, even more, uh, it's even more confusing for those uh, people who are uh, in the um, elderly community because they can't uh, react to this quick enough. They don't have family members nearby. So th these these are really uh, key points that we should consider. And and also uh, there are increasing uh, evidence of levels of drug and alcohol abuse, suicides, 
domestic abuse and all of these uh, additional health factors are being unreported. And, and let's look at also the cost uh, of individuals postponing or waiving existing medical treatments because, because of the fear of either going to a hospital or the whole trauma of going there. We, we don't know what we're going to meet. We don't know uh, what we're going to encounter. How, how, what's the process? I don't know what's going to happen. And just, just take, for instance, one, one very, very small example. And, and this could be, for instance, uh, you have a, a dentist appointment w w for, for one of your children. And um, you know that Basically, that this issue, uh, this dental appointment is there. It's a pre-existing uh, condition, but you, you're just traumatized. You don't know how to, to go about this now. How do you fit it into your schedule? So again, the, the, these are uh, key points, and I think we should all bear this in mind. But also, um, in response to this, I, I, I completely accept that there will be you know, uh, an element there that there'll be detractors who will argue, uh, how can this be true? That these are just fanciful thoughts. You know, you're just dredging them up from a, you know, suspicious or overactive mind. But again, you know, we're not trying to change someone's uh, viewpoint. What we're saying is that we are just presenting an alternative uh, perspective and it must be considered because any problem solving approach must consider uh, uh, an alternative approach. And, and I'd like to remind everyone uh, of a very famous quote by Albert Einstein, which, which is actually very useful at this point. And basically what it says is that just because you don't believe in something, it doesn't mean it's not true. So I think at that point, um, uh, I'd like to hand back to Navsi, and, and I think, you know, up, uh, up until this point, we've covered a lot of ground, and I think it would be a good point now to just review and go over a few things. Okay. A lot of viewpoints have been put forward on this on how to interpret and reshape the current uh, crisis scenario. I don't think many people uh, would have thought of applying philosophy in this situation. I think it's an excellent, uh, brilliant way of presenting an alternative view. I'd really like the point that you made about um, reframing the argument and also the issues addressed in uh, critically analyzing scientific methods used in relation to the current situation. Um, I know a lot of ground has been covered. Uh, with all this out of the way, there are a couple of issues that I would uh, like to explore. But before I do that, can you briefly wrap up the uh, discussion? Yes. Okay, so let, let's um, let's provide a, a conclusion for the listeners, um, and it's almost like we're, we're moving now to some kind of final analysis. We've covered a lot of points there, but I'd like to start with uh, a great quote by Stanley Kubrick, um, one of the most influential filmmakers in cinematic history, and it's a very very simple quote, and and it's it's so meaningful at this this moment and what it what he said was observation is a dying art and what he means by that um, well I mean he was um, proposing that that particular argument in a, in a completely different uh, context but when you look at it it applies as much today as when he said it so the meaning is that the knowledge is a form of power and it depends uh, on how that information, how that knowledge is being used. 
And equally, observation can lead or provide power. And, and we've seen this in the, in the COVID-19 situation that power uh, comes in the form of uh, scientific data that, that we're actually um, being asked to review. So when we, when we look at um, power in the form of e uh, empirical research, it's either being used to control other people or it's uh, an existing comorbidity. And, and therefore, basically, are, are, is that power, is, is that use of power, is, is that being isolated from uh, the existing cases of, uh, of COVID uh, information that we're receiving? Uh, time will tell. That, that, that's really basically what, what it boils down to. But the, the fundamental point is that power is created through observation. Um, and, and this leads to beneficial, uh, it can either lead to beneficial or adverse effects. So in the final analysis, a scientific theory is not, uh, what we're saying is that a, a scientific theory is not the end result of the process itself. And uh, theories can be either improved or modified as more data is gathered. So the accuracy of the prediction becomes greater over time. So the, the real critical point here is that even though so little is known about the, the COVID crisis, uh, can these disproportionate measures be justified? So we argue that a problem-solving strategy in the current crisis needs to be applied to a broad range of scientific phenomena and, and not just solely look at test cases such as positive or negative rates uh, which we're experiencing in the community. Also, we should look at the, the social spillover effects, such as these uh, uh, psychological and physi physiological disorders that we've seen, which all related to masks and, and lockdowns, etc. And therefore, to achieve, to achieve this, hypotheses should be employed and tested independently. And, 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 and again, one point that we've already discussed is that the science and philosophy can help understand the world much better, but each has its own independent area of, of uh, expertise. And also, we've already mentioned that, that science focuses on empirical truths, but the role of philosophers is more pertinent because they apply their discipline with, with a greater independence of thought than scientific researchers. So one recommendation in, in the crisis is to facilitate possibly an interdisciplinary dialogue between science, philosophy, and uh, possibly other disciplines such as the social sciences. But more importantly, what we're saying is that a rational debate is really called for uh, and to address the current crisis. Uh, and in this way, we can forge a new path between governments, between the scientific community, uh, and um, uh, adopt a voice of reason and, and also but more, more importantly is to include the wider society because all of us as citizens are stakeholders in this ongoing crisis and the answers lie in binding communities not dividing them. So again we, we've, we've covered a lot of things and um, just finally what, what I'd like to say is that um, I'd like to bring back to this point about uh, a normative approach because that helps us establish uh, what should or what ought to be. Are the decisions that have been made on our behalf, are they, are they good decisions? And we would argue that, that the e economic and social consequences and the psych phys uh, physiological 
consequences, they've actually caused more distress. And, and we have to ask ourselves, are these leading to optimal or desired outcomes during this uh, decision-making process? So overall, we, we, we've covered a lot of topics and we'd like to say many, many thanks to all of the listeners um, for listening to this first episode of Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciated your company today. And possibly, if you can, have a think about the issue. Please send us feedback. To uh, Maybe you've had personal experience. Uh, send all your uh, feedback to info at gmcradio.com. I'll repeat that, info at gmc-radio.com. You can contact us online at gmc-radio.com. Please like, share, and comment. Uh, all of our um, the the information that you see connect with us on social channels such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, many many thanks for listening. And please send us your feedback. And we'd love to hear your views. Maybe you've had personal experiences about this. Okay, it's bye from both of us from this episode. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. 